And His mercy is for those who fear Him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with His arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich He has sent away empty. He has helped His servant Israel in remembrance of His mercy as He spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to His offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. This is the word of our Lord. Well, the scene looks an awful lot like a scene in which a younger pregnant woman travels four miles to perhaps help take care of an older pregnant woman. Elizabeth is six months pregnant, and Mary goes to stay with her for, as our passage says, three months, presumably to help uh, Elizabeth prepare for the birth and then to return home to have her own baby. Now, it seems like that's the scene, clear enough, right? The reason for these two women getting together, however, is not so easy to sort out. I think that when we, when we consider pregnancy today, we think about a number of things, things like announcing the pregnancy to others in a very creative, clever way. We think about celebrating the pregnancy with uh, others. We think about the physical preparations that a pregnancy requires. We think about doctor's visits for the mom-to-be. We think about preparing the baby's room. And we think, obviously, of course, of channeling updates to future grandparents so they're uh, aware of every little detail. And all of this makes sense, double so for this particular scene, because there's not one pregnancy, uh, there's actually two pregnancies. But those things that we expect when we come to this scene, well, none of those really appear here in Luke chapter 1. What I believe this passage is teaching us is that here we have a conversation between two uh, Christian pregnant women. And this conversation... By the Holy Spirit, as Luke is recounting this for us, this conversation between Mary and Elizabeth teaches us that happiness is believing God's work of salvation for us and for others. There are several reasons why I think that the word happiness ought to be considered for this passage. It seems as though the very first half of the passage, 39 through 45, it's Elizabeth talking to Mary, but uh, Elizabeth is telling Mary and the world how to be happy. I think we see that in verse 45, but the first half of the passage, Elizabeth speaks to Mary and to the world about how to be happy. And then beginning at verse 46 to the end of the passage, it's, it's Mary speaking to Elizabeth, sort of, And Mary tells Elizabeth and the world why that happiness is even possible. And so Elizabeth tells Mary and the world how to be happy in the first half. And then Mary tells Elizabeth, though it seems not directly, uh, why happiness is even possible. So that's how I've divided the passage. 
let me uh, begin with verses 39 through 35. Elizabeth, Elizabeth tells Mary and the world how to be happy. Now, Mary uh, heads to uh, Elizabeth's house, house, it would seem rather quickly. She's just heard news uh, from uh, Gabriel, and she seems to actually rush to the house of Zechariah and Elizabeth. Why is she doing that? I mean, it could be that Mary is rushing to the home of Elizabeth to confirm something that the angel has told her in verse 36. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. That was a promise that was made to Mary in verse 36 from the angel Gabriel. It could be that Mary is rushing to Elizabeth's house to confirm that what Gabriel said to her is true. I suppose there could be several simpler reasons why Mary is rushing to the home of Elizabeth, maybe simply to assist Elizabeth in her pregnancy uh, at uh, month six. It could be that Mary, some commentators suggest this, has gone to be in the home of Elizabeth that she might uh, be almost, as it were, in hiding to avoid the stigma of being an unwed mother. Maybe that's part of Mary's rationale. It could be that Mary uh, goes to Elizabeth to find a comfort from someone who would believe Mary's crazy tale about the visit of Abraham. Abraham, Gabriel. (laughs) She should believe that as well. And so it could be that Mary is going to Elizabeth because she knows that Elizabeth, who's married to a priest, a very devout godly woman, would, uh, would quickly believe what the angel Gabriel told her. Well, I think it's interesting that when Calvin contemplates the same question, why did Mary go so quick? Why so quick to Elizabeth? Calvin says simply this, to strengthen her faith and to celebrate God's grace. How about that for just a simple rationale? To strengthen her faith, to be encouraged by what Elizabeth may have to share with her. To be encouraged by the faithfulness of God, that what God has promised is indeed coming about. So to strengthen her faith, but also to celebrate God's grace. Two pregnant women gathering together and they're not having the normal kind of conversation we might expect when two pregnant women get together. They really are celebrating God's good and perfect plan for salvation. Now, uh, Mary simply uh, greets Elizabeth. Verse 40 says she entered the house of Zechariah, and she greeted Elizabeth. Now, this seems altogether ordinary, doesn't it? But from the ordinary event of a woman entering the home of a relative, two remarkably extraordinary events actually happen. I realize that some of this may be stating the obvious. It's clear before us in the text, but I want us to recognize how extraordinary this conversation actually is. The first thing to note is this. It isn't Elizabeth who first responds to the greeting of Mary, is it? It's the baby in her womb who responds. And that response is actually dramatic. Verse 41 says the baby uh, leaped in her womb, and we read later that the baby leaped uh, for joy. And wouldn't we all just love to know what exactly is happening here? Mary uh, enters the house and offers a greeting. We're not given the details of the greeting. 
And Elizabeth's baby seems to be old enough to uh, hear and to leap. Was it the voice of Mary that did this? Verse 44 says that the sound of the greeting is important. But verse 41 says that Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And so as her baby uh, makes this leap, uh, it could be this baby has done this uh, before. Uh, Elizabeth as a mom would know this uh, about her baby boy. But uh, this baby makes a leap in her womb and the Holy Spirit tells Elizabeth that that leap is specifically to acknowledge not Mary, but the Lord. And Elizabeth resoundingly believes this. The baby leaps for joy, not in the celebration of the greeting of Mary, but in the celebration of Mary's baby. We know that when Elizabeth's baby grows up, he will make his entire life about praising Mary's baby. But he's already beginning to do that. So it isn't Elizabeth who responds, but the baby in her room that responds. That's the first extraordinary detail of this scene. And then the second is this. Elizabeth doesn't welcome Mary uh, herself, but she actually welcomes Mary's faithfulness. She, she uh, welcomes Mary's uh, belief in the story of redemption. Right? So when Mary comes in and offers this greeting, it's, it, Elizabeth, she's not necessarily welcoming Mary herself, but welcoming Mary's faith, and she does this dramatically. Verse 22 says that this elderly Elizabeth exclaimed with a loud cry, Nothing subtle here. Imagine this happening in a small house. And not only this, but what she says is very unusual. So she says something loudly. She shouts something. But what she shouts looks an awful lot like a poem or a song. We could call it a poem about grace or a song about grace. I wish that English translations would would break apart Elizabeth's words so that the poetry underneath the English would appear. In the Greek, uh, Elizabeth's words resound with poetry. Elizabeth makes three assertions about what? Not about Mary, but more about Mary's faith or even more so about God's grace. The, the first uh, two uh, words that, uh, that break up or delineate this poem uh, are the words uh, blessed. The, the first two words when she says blessed twice in that first verse, verse uh, 42. Uh, those words actually help to bracket off the poem. And then she's going to use the word blessed again in verse 45. But that word blessed in verse 45 is a different word in the Greek. It's almost like there's an escalation in the words of Elizabeth. Uh, Blessed in verse 42, blessed in verse 42, and then blessed with a different word in verse 45. And 45, I think, is the climatic expression of this song of grace. In verse 42, Elizabeth says, blessed are you among women. Purely by grace alone, 
Elizabeth is saying, God has made you higher, Mary, than any other woman. Not merely by uh, coming to you in the angel Gabriel, but by making you pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Mary, you've done nothing. And Mary knows it. God has done everything. And so blessed are you among women. And then a second time in this song, Elizabeth says, blessed is the fruit of your womb. Ponder that expression for a moment. Blessed is the fruit of your womb. This is an awkward birth announcement. We would expect, Mary, you're pregnant. But imagine uh, this uh, second phrase in verse 42 really is a birth announcement. It's an acknowledgement that indeed, Mary, you're pregnant. And yet, I'm not sure that uh, we would say this to a pregnant uh, mom in the same way. Blessed is the fruit of your womb. While God's grace is upon uh, Mary, Elizabeth is saying that God's grace is also upon the baby himself. God takes delight in this baby. Mary, you're pregnant, but God, he takes delight in this baby. And when Elizabeth's baby will baptize the fruit of Mary's womb, Jesus, what does Elizabeth's baby say, or what does the Holy Spirit say then in the presence of Elizabeth's baby and in the presence of Mary's baby? Heaven opens up, and at the baptism of Jesus, a baptism performed by John the Baptist, God says, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. But Elizabeth, by the Holy Spirit, she understands that. Blessed is the fruit of your womb. You're pregnant, but Mary, God's grace is upon this baby. And then with this uh, escalation of uh, odd expressions for uh, a, a pregnant woman to say and a pregnant woman to hear, along comes verse 45. Blessed, and it's a different word. It's the word that Jesus uses in the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed, or happy is Happy is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Happy is she who believed. Now, this is pretty remarkable. Calvin says that in this verse, Elizabeth describes what the true happiness of every person should consist of. The happiness of belief in the story of redemption. The the translation should probably read something like this. And happy is she who believed. Why is she happy? And the verse goes on. Because there will be a fulfillment of the word spoken to her by the Lord. There's a spiritual kind of happiness. There's a sanctified kind of happiness. There's a a grace-centered kind of happiness. Uh, There is a God-derived kind of happiness that Elizabeth is talking about. You know, Elizabeth seems to understand something about Mary that perhaps Mary herself is struggling to wrap her mind around. Elizabeth thoroughly believes that Jesus has come. She believes that her own baby is a gift of God's grace and that the special baby that is leaping in her womb is a baby whose specialness pales in comparison to the special baby that Mary arrives carrying. 
she believes that this is why Mary is blessed among all women, even including herself, says Elizabeth. She already calls Mary's baby in verse 43, Lord, why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? We just think about what is going on in Elizabeth's mind by the work of the Holy Spirit. Elizabeth is a pregnant woman. Six months, the baby's healthy, things are going well. I mean, her her husband can't speak right now. That's odd. But things are going very, very well. And yet, uh, this opportunity for Elizabeth and Mary to sit down together and commiserate the the, the beauty and the blessedness of being pregnant, and for Elizabeth to be uh, uh, ultra-motherly and to shed light upon what is going to happen in Mary's near future, that doesn't happen. What happens instead? Why, says Elizabeth, Why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? It seems as though Elizabeth is pregnant, large with child, but all she can think of is her smallness before God. She doesn't deserve the grace of God. Why is it granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? And not only this, Elizabeth, she is diagnosing Mary in a sense. She's saying to her, you're happy, Mary, not because you are pregnant. You're happy because you believe in the power of God to fulfill his promises, promises that he has already begun to fulfill. We can almost hear this parenting echo in Elizabeth's comments to Mary. Mary, you're happy because you believe that God will fulfill his promises. What are those promises? We didn't read it this morning, but you can look earlier in Luke's gospel and hear the words of Gabriel to Mary. You will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. How... Do you think Mary knows that these things will happen? Because she believes them. Elizabeth has said, blessed are you because you believe. How does Mary know that these things that Gabriel has said will happen? Because these things have already begun to happen. The angel said to Mary in verse 31 of Luke chapter 1, I skipped over it. But when the angel was articulating all of the fulfillments that this Jesus would bring, the very first thing that the angel said to Mary is, you will conceive in your womb. And what has Elizabeth just told her? You are pregnant. Mary knows, knows that God will fulfill his promises in this baby. Elizabeth really is being the the true older woman in the church. I think of Titus chapter uh, 2, where Paul gives Titus advice to give to the older women in the church, that they would be uh, reverent in their behavior, that they would teach what is good, and that they would train young women in the church. And when I think of what Elizabeth is saying to Mary, Elizabeth is displaying to Mary her own Christian faith, believing in the promises of God, praising God for the coming of the Lord Jesus. And Elizabeth displays this faith and this reverence before this younger woman, Mary. 
But she's also doing something else. Elizabeth is telling Mary who she is as a Christian woman. She's telling Mary that she is someone who is blessed by God, made happy before God as one who believes in the promises of God. Isn't it so wonderful when a Christian will meet us in a, in a low point in our lives, in a confusing point in our lives, and remind us of our profession of faith in Jesus Christ and that that profession of faith will not fall empty. God will bring to completion that which he has begun. And Elizabeth, as a good older mother, is showing her faith, her belief in the gospel to Mary, but she's telling Mary who she is. Mary, you are someone who believes in this as well. But before we move on from the first half, let me say this. Elizabeth is not just showing Mary what belief looks like. And she's not just telling Mary uh, what her profession of faith means, the source of her happiness, as it were. But Elizabeth is also speaking to you and to me this morning. In that third blessing in Elizabeth's song in verse 45, here's why I think it's the climax of this uh, song or poem of Elizabeth about grace. Because Elizabeth says, blessed is she... Rather than saying, blessed are you, Mary, blessed is she. It's almost as if Elizabeth is saying that anyone can have this kind of happiness, Mary. Blessed is she, and we would have to say blessed is he, who believes in the promises of God for salvation. The church every year celebrates the season of Advent with these four uh, Sundays. And as we reflect upon the coming of Jesus, uh, I would like for you, if you are not ready to profess faith in Jesus, don't find yourself ready, to contemplate the, the strangeness of this conversation between these two women and what the older woman says to the younger woman about Christian belief. Blessed is anyone who believes in the promises of God for salvation. And so Elizabeth tells Mary that happiness is believing God's work of salvation. But then the passage changes because Mary begins to speak. And Elizabeth was addressing Mary, but now Mary, it seems, tells Elizabeth and the world why this happiness is even possible. Why this happiness that Mary has, that Elizabeth has, is even possible. Remember, that all Mary has said thus far in our passage is a greeting, and we didn't even get to hear the words of that greeting. So don't forget the framework. Mary and Elizabeth have uh, two pregnancies to celebrate, but the kinds of celebration we might expect gets turned into something that we don't expect. There's surprise all over this passage. And now Mary speaks, and she speaks without interruption for some ten verses. But it isn't necessarily a normal kind of speech, is it? You can see that in the English translation in front of you. I think we have no choice but to imagine the conversation thus far taking place uh, here in Elizabeth's room um, in a rather funny way. A a woman walks in, a greeting is offered, a baby leaps in utero, a mother recites a poem or song of grace with a loud voice, and now what will Mary do? Who knows? The scene is so strange. Here's what Mary will do. She'll, of course, recite a long psalm. 
That's what seems to happen in the passage. Before we even hear what exactly Mary's greeting is, we have uh, Mary reciting a long psalm. Now, before looking at Mary's psalm, I want to stop right here, and I want us to very quickly admit something. Do we really expect that the kinds of conversations that two non-believers have and the kinds of conversations that two believers have are essentially the same thing? There's overlap. I mean, when Christian people come together at home or at work or at play, their conversation will, of course, cover topics like the conversation between two non-believers. But isn't there a real sense that when Christians come together that their conversation should be just a little bit odd to others? Our conversations will likely, as Christians, include our interests and hobbies and vocations, to be sure. But when Christians come together, let's hope that Jesus and the plan of, the, of redemption, let's hope that the church and our life in the church, let's hope that the grace that our Heavenly Father has bestowed upon us, let's hope that those things also get a little bit of airtime in those conversations. In fact, it may even do us some good to share a, bro- a verse with a brother or a sister. This is a pastoral hint to you that it might be a good idea to devote some time to Scripture memory. Maybe it would be good that our conversations as Christians be odd to the world for a number of reasons. We break out in memorized poetry every now and again. Now, when you, when you think about that, uh, Mary uh, singing or perhaps merely reciting a, a new composition uh, may seem a little bit less odd for two Christians. Uh, we uh, understand that Mary is uh, reciting words that are given to her in the moment by the Holy Spirit. Uh, these very words have uh, become known to us as the Magnificat because in the Latin translation of the Bible, that's the, that's the first word of Mary's psalm. There is so much to say about this composition. But I just want to draw our attention to two glaring realities and move on to, to my conclusion. There are two glaring realities that should leap out to us about this composition of Mary. And then I'll tell you what I think Mary is doing uh, here, what she is telling Elizabeth and what she's telling us. the, The first glaring reality is this, is that Mary is reciting words that are in complete continuity with the Old Testament. While the words here are new, there's not a, there's, this isn't a direct quote. The words here are new by the power of the Holy Spirit. The form of the words is very much like the Old Testament scriptures, the Psalms in particular. So, for instance, a, a praise psalm in the Old Testament, it would have this a structure that would uh, have uh, a word praising God followed by a reason or rationale for that praise. So, Psalm 136 begins, "'Give thanks to the Lord.'" Why? Well, Psalm 136 goes on, for he's good and his steadfast love endures forever. And the first half of Mary's psalm does this. My soul magnifies the Lord, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. And so there's this uh, psalmic feel. And a psalm uh, would also have a lot of parallel lines, and, and that too we find in Mary's composition. My soul magnifies and my spirit rejoices. He has, uh, looked, uh, he has looked on me. 
uh, and he is mighty and has done great things. There's this constant back and forth in Mary's words, these, these couplets, these doubles, slightly different words, but it's exactly what we find in the Psalms. Now, we need to keep in mind that when Mary speaks in an Old Testament form, there is a continuity with how God speaks throughout the ages, and Mary is letting that be known. That God speaks through Mary, a Greek speaker, in a particular form that mirrors the Hebrew, that mirrors the Old Testament. This is provocative. It may be that we ourselves need to take Hebrew poetry more seriously. Mary, she's speaking in Greek as, as if she is, she's uttering Hebrew poetry. We also need to keep in mind that when Mary speaks in this Old Testament form, God is likely bringing to mind other famous psalms or songs, especially like the psalm that Hannah sings when she gives birth to Samuel. She who was once barren rejoices that God has kept his promise to give her a child. And many see in 1 Samuel 2, Hannah's song, a lot of complementary features with the song of Mary. Hannah understands that if God is able to create new life in her through belief in his promises and new life within her barren womb, well then, what can God not do? And Hannah, as she uh, offers her psalm, she finishes it by saying this in 1 Samuel 2.10. Hannah says, The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Hannah just gave birth. And she's offering this child to uh, the temple at Shiloh to minister under Eli's leadership. She just gave birth, but Hannah understands that if he kept this promise, what promise will he not keep? He will judge the ends of the earth, give strength to his king, exalt the horn of his anointed. And Mary's psalm is very much like Hannah's, almost as if Mary has Hannah's psalm memorized. And she's reciting it with variations. But here's what Mary's really doing. Mary is speaking in the form of a psalm to show us how faithful God is to all of his promises. That this child in her is the fulfillment of all of God's promises once and for all. There's this seamless continuity in the plan of God, in the story of redemption, in the history of God's revelatory power. There is this great consistency, and Mary understands that this baby is the fulfillment of each and every one of those promises. Now, Mary, she believes this. And as she speaks in this uh, frame of mind that reminds us of the Old Testament, this is what Mary is doing. She's showing that this baby's significance is cosmic. This is the one who fulfills all of God's promises. God's promises with the patriarchs. God's uh, promises to uh, King David and Solomon. God's promises to the exiled people. God's promises to the people as they return from exile. All of those promises are continuous with Mary's words and fulfilled in Mary's baby. 
Now, that's the first uh, glaring reality I want us to see in Mary's song, that it brings together the Old Testament and the New Testament into one seamless story of God's redemptive plan fulfilled in Jesus. But there's a second thing to notice. Not only does Mary's psalm bring continuity with the Old Testament promises, the psalm takes a surprising turn in the middle so that in verses 46 through 50, these these verses, while they focus on Mary's experience, they change. Something happens in verse 51. From verse 51 to 55, the, the focus of Mary's psalm focuses on the broader experience of the saving power that goes out to a large number of people. It's in the second half of Mary's psalm that we learn about God's servant Israel and the offspring of Abraham. I don't know if you have seen those pictures of vegetation growing, and I thought about that when I was thinking about this actual song and the division at verse 51, that there is something about the first half in which Mary is talking about the germination of faith in her own heart and the goodness of, that she has received from God's grace, and then the plant grows and flourishes through the psalm. So when we get to the second half of the psalm, the, the, the words of Mary, they actually erupt beyond the experience of Mary and they enter onto the world stage. The promises of God are real promises experienced in the life of Mary and she believes them, but these promises are larger than Mary and they erupt onto the world stage. Remember, this is a song of a happy heart. Elizabeth has said this, happy is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what God uh, has, has spoken. And at first in this psalm, Mary is describing the personal experience of belief in God's plan, and we all should do that. Mary's soul and her spirit rejoice. Mary sings praises. Mary magnifies the name of her Savior. She notices her special role of being happy because of God's great grace. God has done great things for me, she says in verse 49. This is an appeal to everyone who professes faith in Jesus Christ. This is your praise. Christianity isn't simply an intellectual endeavor that we grab hold of the way we would grab hold of a philosophical idea. Christianity is a transformative relationship in which our hearts are made new by the power of God. We are indeed in Christ Jesus new creations, and as new creations we sing loudly of the great things that he has done for me, verse 49. And then Mary, she, she hints of something larger when she says in verse 50, His mercy is for those who fear Him from generation to generation. This is not just about Mary. This is not just about her experience as a Christian woman, though it is about her experience as a Christian woman. In verse 51, God shows His strength to the entire world. He scatters or he punishes the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He sees the hearts of the world, not merely the heart of Mary and of Elizabeth. He brings down the mighty from their thrones in verse 52. He fills the hungry. He sends away the rich. Who are these hungry? Who are these rich? Who are these on mighty thrones? Those of the entire world. And the psalm 
erupts as a gospel proclamation of the saving work of God in Christ Jesus. And then what is happening at the end of the psalm? It's no longer about Mary's happiness, is it? It's about the work of God. Just look at the repetition beginning at verse 51 of the phrase, He has. Look at that. He has. That phrase eats up the rest of Mary's song. It's not merely a song of her experience as a Christian. It's a song about the powerful work of God. He has appears repeatedly to describe at least eight actions of God and God alone. He has shown his strength, scattered the proud, brought down the mighty, exalted the humble, filled the hungry, sent away the rich, helped his servants, spoken to our fathers. One scholar looking at this passage says, uh, says it very well when he says that here we see the decisive work of God dramatically in operation and unmistakably in control of all human affairs as the advent of God's peaceful, just kingdom is realized. Powerful psalm. And so here Mary is telling Elizabeth and Mary is telling us why this happiness in the gospel is even possible. Not merely because I'm saved, which I am, but because of the work of the one who has saved me by grace and grace alone. And so here are these two glaring realities once more. Mary is speaking with Old Testament continuity in the form of a psalm to show us that Jesus fulfills all of God's promises in the history of redemption. But second, Mary is speaking not merely about her own belief and her own experience as a Christian, but about the God who works his plan of salvation for the entire world to behold. Well, let me help us understand what's happening in this passage as we close. Here we are this morning. And we're celebrating the Advent. We're celebrating the birth of Jesus. And our passage has these two pregnant women, both under the power of the Holy Spirit, uh, contemplating this very moment, the very moment that we're contemplating. Both are believers in God's plan of redemption uh, through the work of the Messiah, Jesus. Elizabeth rejoices, but she rejoices not over her baby. She rejoices over Jesus. Uh, Mary believes that this baby that she is carrying is the great fulfillment of God's plan. And if God has made her her pregnant, what won't God do to bring about his plan in its entirety? Elizabeth believes. Mary believes. Two happy Christian women coming together celebrating grace. But don't miss this. They're together to contemplate nothing but the grace of God. Their happiness is all about God's grace. It's not about the pregnancies. Both understand of themselves that they are completely and utterly undeserving of God's touch. Elizabeth admits this. Mary admits this. They would never forget to admit it. They come together actually in both their lostness and their hope. They know, they know that there's no hope for them outside of Jesus Christ. Let's not miss that. But let's also not miss this, that God's grace is centered entirely on the work of him alone through the person of Jesus. I mean, just just think about this as we tie things up. Four people gather together in what presumably is a small house, 
Three of these people are all directed at Jesus. Elizabeth and her, ba- and her baby, Mary. Three of them are all directed towards Jesus. And then the great refrain of the song is, He has. God has given this gift to the world. And as a Christian, it's a reminder that from beginning to end, my happiness depends upon realizing again and again that I'm saved by God's good grace. God is the great intruder into my life. And he has given me new life by his Holy Spirit through the work of Jesus Christ, who is himself that great intruder into the filth of our lives today. God has done this. And what we need, Christians, is we need that reminder uh, that he has. He has, he has, he has, he has done this. There's nothing for us to boast. And to be sure, we need to help remind one another that he has and not I have. And then if you're here this morning and you're not a believer, you need to understand this. That Mary and Elizabeth, these two women, are not describing something that uh, has begun and is merely completed in their lives. They understand that God's story of redemption is so much larger than themselves that that story of of redemption is actually not over. This plan is not something that's invented by believers or finalized when a person comes to believe. This is God's plan, and it is going on right now in your midst And the church, she has this opportunity to not say to you, I have, but to say to you, he has. And to insist that you believe that this one who has come, this Jesus, has come to fulfill all of the promises of God. And if you do not believe in him, you are waiting not as a neutral person, you are waiting as a dead person. This is a season of Advent. Do not wait. Well, let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you that you are with us and that you are reminding us of your good plan to save and that that plan is not a product of our imagination or a benefit of any of our works or efforts or intentions. It is your plan and your plan alone. We receive it by grace in Jesus Christ. And then we would pray for those who are here this morning who are not quite, for whatever reason, ready to profess faith in this Jesus. And we pray, Father, that you would draw them to yourself by your Holy Spirit and that they would no longer wait. Thank you, Father, for this plan of redemption in Jesus' name. Amen.